0: the children up through sixth grade can be dismissed for a children's church at this time. They will have their children's church upstairs. I know it wouldn't take long for the children to leave. They're usually pretty good at exiting when when given the, the, the awareness. Birthdays are exciting events, aren't they? We have Three granddaughters now in our family and birthdays have become more exciting in our family because we anticipate that time with them. Um, I don't think Grace and I are quite so excited about our own birthday celebrations, but our granddaughters, I'm sure will get excited about them. And, and the older we get, we know the excitement fades, but, but now at that young age, they're exciting events. Well, we have no reason or I have no reason to expect you'd come to my grandchildren's birthday party. If it was your grandchildren, I'd expect you to be there, but I don't expect you to come to my granddaughter's. But today we're all celebrating the same birthday this weekend, aren't we? We're coming together because there's a birthday that's worth all of us celebrating. We remember that Jesus was born. As we think about his birth this weekend, I want us to consider why we celebrate it. Why would we celebrate his birth when, like I said, you would not come to my granddaughter's birthday Why do we celebrate his birth together? What makes his birthday worthy of universal celebration? Now, if you're a regular attender here over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at passages that pointed to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. The the one who was predicted to sit on the throne of David for Israel to restore the, the ultimate glory of Israel as a kingdom. A kingdom that would even become worldwide. Certainly, To this point in history, that has never happened. Israel has always been a rather small nation when it's been a nation at all. There's been times in history where it seems to have disappeared, but then it comes back. But even as times when it's been a definable nation, much of history has had Israel under the the rule of, of someone else. It's not been an independent nation. Still, over the last couple of weeks, the passages we've looked at have shown us that this promise of the Messiah that would come said that it would become an independent nation, a powerful nation, a great nation. And we've also seen over the last couple of weeks that this promise of the Messiah coming is tied to our Christmas celebration. This morning, I'm going to primarily look at, at another passage that, that deals with the Messiah of Israel. The particular passage, as you can see on the screen, is, is in the book of Isaiah, it's a passage that, pre- that, that is located in a section that predicts the birth and the ministry of, of this one who's called the Messiah. I've ref- been referring to him as Messiah, but we know him as a person. A person with the name Jesus. Isaiah was given prophetic revelation that this future Messiah would come. Now these messages came to Isaiah at a time when Israel was in need of hope. Israel, as you recall, over the last two weeks at this time in their history, was facing foreign oppression. Uh, The Assyrian Empire was the empire of the the day. They were attacking and oppressing the northern kingdom uh, of what we call Israel when they were a divided kingdom. But they were also attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. They were threatening all of what we would think of as Israel today, all of the, the chosen people of God, And overall, at this time in history, Israel's legacy looked questionable at best. Maybe we could even say dismal at worst. Assyria was known to just annihilate its enemies. This morning, we are coming to a time in history where Israel needed hope. I don't know what situation you find yourself in today, but you may be coming to the Christmas season needing hope. I know that the holidays can generate sorrow for many because there's a loved one that is absent and will not be at the table this year. I know that the weekend can create stress for, for many as you consider gathering together with difficult family members because of ruptures that have happened at various times. I, can know, I know you can find yourself d- despairing as you anticipate maybe a lonely weekend because there's no one else to, to celebrate with you. You need hope this weekend. Now on the flip side, you might be here this morning and maybe you're nearly giddy thinking of all the family and friends that, that you'll see over the next few days. Perhaps you're nearly exhausted because you've been spending almost 24-7 getting ready for this exciting weekend. At the moment, you're filled with hope for a joyous coming week. I don't know where each of you are this morning. I don't know where your emotions are at. I don't know where your situation is. But I do know that we all need hope. All of us. Hope is required for us to flourish in life. We do not do well at all without hope. We need hope. Even if you have the hope at this moment of a great weekend coming up, that joy will be short-lived. It will be temporary. The week will come and gone. The gathering of the family will go and it Life will get back to what we call normal. The good news is that hope is available to all of us. Hope that, that lasts a lifetime. The two verses that we're going to consider in Isaiah, they, they contain some of the most well-known words that speak of the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 in particular is found on numerous uh, banners and, and wall posters and countless songs. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well-known words. Yet there's more than just names here in these verses. There's more than just these names talking about the Messiah. What is found in these two verses is a very significant message. A message that just as it was hundreds of years ago when it was given to Israel is significant today. Hope is wrapped up In the coming of a child. Hope is wrapped up in the coming of a child. This morning, many of you might be thinking of these presents that are wrapped up under the Christmas tree. They're waiting to be unwrapped. Well, hope is wrapped up in the coming of a child. The Christmas message is a message of hope, the the Christmas season is a season of hope. Hope is wrapped up in the coming of a child. What we find in the two verses of Isaiah that we're considering this morning is that God, first of all, promised hope in a coming child. God promised hope in a coming child. In the flow of the book of Isaiah, God has introduced the Messiah that would come and introduced back in chapter 7 that this this Messiah would come as a child. Now when we get to chapter 9, that child, the the Messiah, is being described more fully. Verse 6. Here Isaiah's attention is coming fully on this child. He's looking squarely at the child. In fact, the emphasis in the the, the verse, the way it's worded in the original, is on the, the child will be born part. That's where the emphasis lies. The focus is on the child. He's been talking about how the child relates to Israel, but Israel is not the focus. The child is. Also note, this child is given to us. The real gift at the center of everything we're celebrating is the child. It is his birthday. He is the, the real gift that, that has been given to us by God. Now, that's important for us to keep in mind. I know we can all repeat that. Probably as we come to Christmas, we've all sat in enough Christmas services where we can say, yes, Christmas is about Jesus. We keep her focus on him. Yet, yeah, let's be real. We are self-centered people right? Self-centered. We tend to think of us in the middle of us. Even this verse, the child is born to us. Oh, it's about me. He's given for me. Now, the emphasis is on the child. We think we are the center of our lives. And I guess from our perspective, we are. But our perspective is not the perspective that matters. As we come to Christmas, we come to this child. We know this child, as I said, is Jesus. The center is him, not us. I'm sure I mentioned the excitement that comes with my granddaughter's birthday parties. Just imagine that you all came to my granddaughter's birthday party. I don't know why you would be there, but imagine that you came. You're you're a nice person, you came. I know you would be appalled... If it came time to sing happy birthday, if you saw me push my granddaughter into the corner and take the center and focus your attention on me. Frankly, it's far worse if any of us do that with the birthday celebration of the child of God. It is not about us. We are not the center of Christmas. The child who God promised in this verse to give as a gift to his people, that is the center. Let's look at some of the other things we're told about the promised child. This child will come and take upon himself the government. That that means, as I've already mentioned, that he'll sit on the throne of David. He'll sit there and he will rule. Verse 7 adds that his rule will be one that establishes justice and righteousness. Can, can you imagine? Here we are sitting in America today, and I think it's hard for us to even fathom. Can you imagine a, a rule of perfect justice and righteousness? A, a government that wants to do what's right all the time. A government that ensures that righteous justice is served. That's the promise. Furthermore, there will be no end To the increase of his government. That means that this kingdom will endure forever. It will bring a permanent peace. This is a message of hope. Yet how can the child accomplish this? How can this come about? Well, Isaiah's language is very precise. I've already mentioned that the child will be given. The Messiah is the eternal Son of God. And and as such, his beginning does not originate at his birth or conception for that matter. Rather, he will be given at the point of his birth. He will be God himself entering into creation. That's the point that's being emphasized really with the four names that we have given in verse 6. There's four names here. Now I know in the King James and the New King James, there's a comma between Wonderful Counselor. It makes it look as if they're two separate names, two, two separate titles. But in the original language, it seems like there's perfect symmetry where we have a two-word two title given four times. So I believe Wonderful Counselor goes together. It's one title, it's one name, if you would. We can literally translate it, this one, this Messiah, this one that will be given this child, he is a wonder of a counselor. Each of these pairs seem to have an element of deity, and an element of humanity put together in the title. Wonder has overtones of deity. The word that's used for wonder in the Old Testament here has this overtones of deity. The Messiah will not have to depend on external advisors. As God, he knows everything. He will have perfect knowledge of every single thing within his kingdom. And he will be able to combine that that complete and perfect knowledge with perfect wisdom to make use of his knowledge. In other words, he will be able to be his own counselor. And he'll rule then as a wonderful counselor. The the next title we have added is Mighty God. That's the next name or title that's given here. Well, God makes it clear now that the child is deity. I said wonder has overtones of deity. God is clear. But let's remember, in the Old Testament here, the the fact that we have a triune God is, In other words, we have one God in three persons. That is rather obscured in the Old Testament. The Old Testament focus was on the oneness of God. God in three persons, that that required the birth of the child to to make clear revelation. The Old Testament hints sometimes that one God has multiple persons, but we're looking at from our New Testament that shows it clearly. Here is clearly a strong hint. That this child God would be God. And now we know for sure how that works. Of course, as God, we also are told he'll be mighty. Mighty God. No one will stand against his rule. This is a military idea. He will have a, be able to defeat any military opposition that might arise against him. No one in the world can oppose Mighty God. Next comes eternal, or as the King James translator, translation has it, everlasting. Eternal Father. As the Son of God, the, the child is eternal. He is from everlasting past to everlasting future. He is eternal. There, there's, again, nothing surprising about this First part of this name after the second name, when, when we know he's God, that means he is eternal. God is eternal. Not that we can comprehend that. It causes our mind to hurt when we try to think of it, but he is God, so he's eternal. Yet, he's eternal what? Father. That's the surprising part here. Father suggests tenderness. It's a term of endearment. The the Old Testament does not use a lot of paternal imagery for God. Rather in the Old Testament the emphasis is usually on God's might. Yet the child who comes, the child that has this might that none can oppose will come as the eternal father. His role will come to rule, but his rule will not be that of a frightening ruler. Rather, he will have a tender rule. He'll display the tenderness and the compassion of a father to the people he governs. Finally, we have Prince of Peace. With, With the coming of the child, there will be an end to all wars. Can you imagine, not only that there's no wars, but you live in a society of perfect harmony. There will be No need to talk about racial reconciliation. There will be no need to talk about social justice because there will be perfect peace throughout all of society. There will be a wholeness that has never existed before. Nations will not rise up against nations. The rich will no longer disenfranchise the weak. The strong will not abuse those who are powerless. Instead... Peace will rule all levels of society. All because the one that's ruling enforces a perfect peace. He will be a peaceful ruler, the the prince of peace. Thinking about these titles, the, the, the question that should naturally come to us is how? How can this be? How can this come about? How can all these marvelous things that are described by these four titles, how can it happen? The answer is found in the last phrase of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How can this be? God will do it. God will cause it to happen. God has promised it. God will do it. It will come about because he guarantees his promise. It will happen because whatever God says becomes a historical fact. God promised hope in the coming child. Remember, hope is wrapped up in, in the coming of a child. Real hope is wrapped up in the child that's promised. Here we have God promised hope in a coming child. Of course, we live in a different era, don't we, than Isaiah was writing to. We are not Jews under oppression by a Syrian empire. We live in a different era. We know that God delivered hope in the coming of a child. We know this. This is history from our perspective. God delivered hope in the coming of a child. We live after the birth of this promised child. We live after the time where he's been born and given a name. That's why we can refer to him multiple times already as Jesus. From our perspective, the coming child is a past event. We have no need to hope that he will come. One thing that's interesting from our verses in Isaiah is that Isaiah wanted his readers to have absolute confidence that that this child that he's predicting would come. Now to my knowledge, none of our English versions translate the, the verbs in our verses precisely the way Isaiah wrote them in the original language. And the reason that none of our versions translate it precisely is because English doesn't work like Hebrew works. We don't have a way to reflect it properly in English. Except for the final verb in verse 7. The, the verb, if you look, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That, that verb, that's the only verb. Except for that verb, all the other verbs are not future tense. That verb, will accomplish, is future. It points to something that will happen in the future. But all the other verbs speak of a completed action. For example, if we were going to translate the first phrase of verse 6 precisely in English, we would translate it, a child has been born. Now, from our perspective today, that makes perfect sense, right? We can talk about Jesus has been born. It's a completed fact. But from Isaiah's perspective, it was hundreds of years in the future. For Isaiah, to say in English, has been born doesn't make sense, but Hebrew allowed for a form. It had a form that could speak of something in the future as a completed action. And it was a way to emphasize there is absolutely no doubt that this will happen. Hebrew allows for this completed tense to emphasize that, that what's being predicted will most certainly happen. That the future verb and in verse 7, is what indicates in the context that all these completed things are still future. The time and a place at which he comes is future, but it is so definite that we can speak of it as already done. He will be born in a definite time and at a definite place. Like I said, we're in a different era. So now we can jump forward several hundred years in history and we can read of that specific time and place. We know he was born in Bethlehem. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we read these words. I'll wait for them to get put up on the screen there. Galatians 4 and 5. There you go. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. When the fullness of time came, that specific time, that definite time that Isaiah was pointing to, when it came, the child was born. Jesus was born. The hope that was promised became a hope that was delivered. Of course, the birth of Jesus teaches us a lot more about the hope that God had promised than, than Isaiah reviewed. For one thing, Paul makes it clear even in, in these verses here that the one born was the Son of God. He sent forth his Son. Isaiah had foreseen, as I told you, that the child would be deity, but now we know how. It's the Son of God was born. It was clarified by the re- revelation that God is both God the Father, God the Son, and then we add in the New Testament, God the Spirit. We know there's a triune God. The one born was God the Son, fully God, eternal God. At the same time, he was born of a woman. Every nativity scene depicts that, right? You always have in nativity scene a manger, and who is kneeling by the manger? Not a trick question. Who's kneeling by the manger? Mary, yeah, born of a woman. We always depict that. He's born of a woman. Mary is kneeling there. She laid her newborn baby in the manger. So Jesus is not only fully God, He is fully man. A man in the line of David. He had the right to sit on the throne of David. Hope delivered. Stunningly, we we also learn that the birth of Jesus gives us more to the hope than was previously understood. Paul told us he would redeem those who were under the law. Paul's using language here that indicates that those who stood guilty before God because of their sin, because they had violated God's revelation, the the law of Moses, could be redeemed. Now, the New Testament expands on that, explains over and over that every person is guilty before God because every person has sinned against a revelation of God in some sense, at some point. None of us are sinless. So it's not only the Jews who need redemption, it's all of us. Every non-Jew needs it equally because we've all rebelled against God. Friends, that, that includes you and me. We're part of that. We are all guilty of sinning against God. Every lie that we've told, every hurtful thing that we have intentionally said, every greedy thought we've entertained, Those leave us guilty. And the Bible is clear. Our failure leaves us condemned before a holy God, deserving eternal punishment. We need redemption. Maybe you've had this experience. I I hope not, uh, because it's kind of embarrassing, so I hope you haven't, but, but... Imagine that you're going through the checkout with a few items that you purchased at a store and you realize you don't have any money. You've left your money at home. Perhaps you're only buying a couple small items. But you cannot redeem them. You don't have money. Well, what if someone standing behind you slips the clerk a little bit of money? They, they see your predicament, they take mercy on you, and they, they say, it's only a few bucks here. Go ahead. From the store's perspective, are you good at that point? Have your items been redeemed? Can you take them home? Sure. They've been purchased. Your purchase has been redeemed by your unexpected Savior. We need to have our sin guilt paid for but we need it paid for by someone else because we do not have the currency that's required to buy it. We cannot pay for it ourselves. The only currency that God will accept to pay for sin is complete holiness. But we don't have that. Our sin makes us unholy. If we pause and think about it for a moment, the fact that hope was promised... In Isaiah, the fact that the child was delivered in history is not necessarily hope for us. Really, Jesus' birth clarifies that we need redemption. We need redemption. Add to that the, the, the promises that we looked at in Isaiah did not all come to pass when Jesus lived. We, we probably all know the Christmas story. One of the misplaced things in many nativity scenes is we have magi standing around them, even though, though we know they arrived a couple years later. But what was the question the magi asked in Matthew chapter 2, 2? We'll read that verse. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. The magi here in Matthew are asking this of King Herod. They go to the palace. Herod is the ruler over the land of of Israel that time. Basically kind of like a governor serving under Rome. And they ask him, where's the king of the Jews? They go to a palace looking for the ruler of Israel at the time. Anticipating that a king is going to be born in a palace. Well, there was never anything about Jesus' birth that looked kingly. The Magi certainly never expected that his birthplace would be in an animal stable. They didn't expect that they would find his family living in a tiny, dusty little village in poverty, in poverty. In fact, if you think about it, there was nothing about Jesus' life all the way through that, that, that looked like he would rise as the promised child of Isaiah. Jesus lived a life of relative obscurity, and he died a painful death on the cross. During his life, really only three of his disciples saw him in a kingly setting where he was transformed for a few brief minutes on the Mount of Transfiguration. Apart from several miracles, the rest of Jesus' time looked ordinary. Nothing about it looked kingly. He certainly never sat upon the throne of David, Remember, though, Jesus did not come to reign when he was born. He came to redeem. That's what the New Testament adds. He came to redeem. The third day after the cross, when he died, he walked out of the grave alive. His death was for our sins. His resurrection was to display victory. Death could not hold him. He was sinless. Jesus' victory over death gives hope. Hope that the promises of of Isaiah are not derailed by his death. Those promises that he would have a a government that would increase forever still have hope of coming true. Instead of defeat, we have hope in the victory over sin and death that all will still happen as promised. God delivered hope in the coming of a child. Hope wrapped up in that child. Now, here we are celebrating the coming of that child. We're, we're celebrating Christmas. As we do that, we are to anticipate that God offers hope in the coming of a king. God offers hope in the coming of a king. The author of Hebrews tells us in the latter part of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It's a, a long verse, but the last part says, when he, being Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, Jesus right now is in a kingly position. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling creation, ruling the universe. Yep. We anticipate that he will not always rule from afar. He will return as king of kings and lord of lords. Remember what Paul tells us in First Thessalonians four sixteen and 17. Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We read this verse oftentimes at funerals. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that we shall always be with the Lord. Paul here is giving words for those who are asleep in Jesus is the context. Those who are asleep in Jesus, this is the hope. Asleep in Jesus points to those who have a reason to hope when Jesus comes again. Because they are redeemed by Jesus. The child whose birth we celebrate here Christmas is the king who is sitting on that throne at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the one that will come when the trumpet sounds. The, the group here sang hallelujah. They were echoing the words of the angels when, when he came in his birth. Hallelujah. But the cry will be worldwide when he comes again. Because when he comes again, he is coming for those who are redeemed as king of kings and lord of lords. The question this morning as you enter Christmas weekend is, are you one of those? Are you one of the redeemed? The only way to be redeemed in Jesus is to believe that his death on the cross when he came the first time was to pay for your sins. Your sins require a currency that you do not have. It requires the sacrifice of sinless persons. Jesus died. To be redeemed, you must accept that he paid for your sins. You must ask that he become your savior. Remember, I had explained you have nothing to offer God. No matter how hard you try, you do not have the currency. It'd be like a lady digging through her her purse at that counter and saying, Well, I've got, let me see, I've got some gum here. Nope, that doesn't work. I've got this, this hairbrush. That doesn't work. And some of you ladies, man, you can keep going in that purse and pull out things after things. I don't know, you might pull out bazooka before you're done, but it doesn't matter, it doesn't work. Whatever you've got doesn't work. The only hope is to let Jesus pay for you. He gave his life for that purpose. But he does not force anyone to accept his gift. It'd be like when the man behind says here, I'll pay for it. And you say, no, I don't want your money. Jesus doesn't force anyone to accept his, his offer. But he has died to provide the currency. You have to decide if you'll accept his sacrifice. If you will let him pay for your sins. If you need to do this, talk to me today. Before you leave, talk to me. If you can't do it today, send me an email. I'd be glad sometime to talk with you and tell you how you can let Jesus pay for your sins. Talk to the person you know here today if you're here as a guest. Let us share with you how you can have your sins forgiven. You can have hope today. Jesus provides hope. Hope that's wrapped up in the the coming of the child Jesus. You can have that today. Isaiah told us, a child will be born. That has happened. Isaiah also told us the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Isaiah has told us that and we've yet to see that come about. But we can sure it will. We can sure Be sure that it will come about because, Isaiah closes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God sent his son in love to redeem his people. God will send his son as king because of his love for his son. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The king is coming. God offers hope in the coming of a king. Hope That is wrapped up in the coming of a child jesus was born that is the birthday that we are celebrating universally this weekend we celebrate because in that birth we have hope hope is wrapped up in the coming of a child your life may have reasons that you find celebrating difficult this weekend or you may be overflowing with joy today in either case No matter the circumstance, what we've seen this morning from Scripture is that you have a reason for hope. Eternal hope. Everlasting hope. Hope that is wrapped up in the coming of a child. Father, what a joy it is to remember that you sent your Son to die for us. You sent your Son as the baby Jesus. A birth that we celebrate annually as we come to this season. A birth that reminds us that he came to die. He came to die for us so that he could purchase our sin debt. He could pay what is required so that we could stand before you, declared holy and righteous, having had our sins redeemed. Father, may we leave here today magnifying Jesus Christ, rejoicing in what we have from him, Father, if there is someone here today that needs to have Jesus forgive their sins, they need to be redeemed by him. They need him as a savior. Father, may today be the day that you draw them to salvation. Open their eyes, help them to understand what Jesus has done. That the hope that they need for all eternity is tied to the birth of Jesus Christ. Wrapped up in him, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.